Hello and welcome to the King Hero IndyCar Podcast with Kirby and Justin. Kirby, how are you? Doing well, Justin. How about yourself? I am morose, Curb. I am morose. <laughs> but why am I morose, Curb? Why because am I Max morose? Verstappen didn't win a race this weekend. We'll get to that. I'm morose because I think IndyCar marketing might be the worst on the planet, which I hope is going to be the overarching theme of this podcast. I think that's a great idea because we're both marketing experts in our real lives. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I am in some degree. I'm going to get, I'm not going to, I'm not going to knock myself off that perch uh, so quickly, Curb. Okay, I will. I mean myself, not you. But uh, <laughs> the first question might be what marketing? But <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Before we get to that, can I just knock off a few uh, trivials? Sure. If I can knock one or two off myself. Okay. Uh, why don't you go first? Uh, I hate to ask this question, but did you happen to watch the NASCAR finale last weekend at Phoenix? No, I did not. Have you ever watched a NASCAR race at Phoenix? If I have, I did not remember it. No, but I, I find it funny, and, and I don't think they talk about track limits at uh, NASCAR races like they used to. Uh, obviously, they're talking about them a lot at uh, Formula One races these days. But, you know, they reconfigured the track, and the start-finish line, I think, is kind of up there. I don't know, in the middle between – what we would all think of as one turns one and two, I think. And so the restarts happen there, particularly happens on restarts, but uh, they just don't bother worrying about track limits at all. <laughs> you know, if you remember from an IndyCar race, you'd come out of the pits. And so turn two doesn't have much of a wall in there. There's a lot of open lanes so that cars come out of the pits can merge into the track and that kind of thing. Right. Yep. And so when they do a restart, all the cars on the inside lane of the restart for NASCAR race just dive. They cut like a tenth of a mile off the track. So like an yeah, apron? Yeah. It's yeah. Just, you know, it's an apron where they come out of the pits and they can merge. They can get up to speed before they have to merge onto the track and all that. So, And I think it's also an opening for the infield for, you know, people to go in and out. But um, so it, it's just biz- the first time I saw it, it was last year and it was bizarre. And so I watched the last 30 or so laps this year. And, and of course, got to watch multiple restarts in those last 30 laps and, it's just bizarre to watch all these cars just blow off the track, the, the white line at the bottom of the track and just cut across his apron. It's normal. It's part of the strategy. It's the most bizarre thing I've ever seen, I think, in professional racing. Uh, we've talked about it uh, before. We talked about it lab, last podcast with uh, Richie Hearn. Uh, you know, uh, NASCAR has become WWE. And, you know, good luck to him, I guess, on that. I, I If that's uh, the route they want to take, um, I, I'm through being just shocked by it i think it's just the way they've decided to go and uh at least they chose a direction and they're going with it yeah i think a purist to a race fan to somebody who's you know likes auto racing i mean you're gonna you're gonna have a hard time stomaching that to somebody who likes you know kind of a hillbilly soap opera on wheels uh you'll probably like it yeah so anyway it was just it was probably the most interesting part of the race to me uh the race that part of the race that i saw curb um are you going to invest in the spirit of the Speedway car? Let me uh, remind you, if you will, of the economics of this. If you put $10,000 in to their crowdfund, you get 1% of the winnings. Okay? All right. So I went and looked and went to this year's race and see what, what it would take to break even on your $10,000 investment. 
Uh, I'm going to guess like top five. Uh, you'd be off. Um, <laughs> to break even, this uh, unnamed driver for the Spirit of the Speedway car is going to, with a you know unnamed team and mechanics and so forth uh, is going to have to place second for break even. Okay, and that, and that accounts for not being part of the leader circle. That uh, well, I didn't even think about that. Probably not. So let's just leave that out because we're just going to confuse people. Okay, right. But let's just say, you know, he, you break even if he comes second. You triple your money, however, if he wins. Well, there you have it. I mean, forget Powerball. Just invest in the uh, <laughs> spirit of uh, the Speedway. Yeah. I would suggest to anybody, and I realize people probably aren't investing for the return here, but uh, you'd probably be better off putting that $10,000 on some of the other drivers gambling. And uh, have a better chance of return, I would suggest. I did one of those a number of years ago. I think it only cost like a hundred dollars or something. But um, and I think supposedly I, you know, I put I uh, asked them to put my dad's name on the car, and supposedly it's on the car somewhere. And, and probably the highlight was that they brought a car, not the car, out to uh, some brew pub not far from my parents' house, and we went down there and had a beer and, and just enjoyed some father-son time. And that was about. <laughs> that was the the maximum benefit out of the money we put into that car. I can promise. Okay, well, which, I which, mean, which was it was well worth a hundred dollars that evening. But uh, sounds like you got your hundred bucks worth, Curb. I'm, that's I'm right. happy for you on that. I'm happy you for go. you on that. Um, Curb, uh, any other trivial matters you want to get into? Um, shockingly, uh, because I was trying to turn into a Colts football game today that unknown unknown to me didn't start till four o'clock. I ended up watching the. Formula One race started at one o'clock, and um, and sadly, we watched most of it. Uh, did you happen to pay any attention to that today? I uh, I did. Also, I worked a lot today. Um, watched as I worked. Um, wow. Okay. I saw the whole race from beginning to end. I'm interested to have your uh, views on it. I guess we can. I guess we can careen into that. Uh, well, I mean, I've seen worse F1 races. I guess. Um, the most interesting part to me was the the last lap, actually, and um, where you have one driver begging his team to have the teammate move over so he can pass him for the benefit of the points for the season, and then another team where they're asking their driver to move over for his teammate, and the driver flat out tells him no, and stop bothering me, stop bothering me with this. <laughs> the second one, of course, is Verstappen, and um, supposedly there's some slight that he suffered earlier this year at the hands of Perez. Is that right? Is that his teammate? Yes. And, yes. Uh, but all, all I could think of was last year at Abu Dhabi and how epic, you know, and for Stoppin's own words, how epic Checo was holding up Hamilton so that Verstappen could run him down at the end. So we've gone from the epic teammate Checo to some teammate that's just pissed off his star teammate and and not worthy of being let over to give a couple of points <laughs> Even, and, uh, team uh, team interest be damned right and, and uh, the other funny thing was that this is the last lap right so this is happening like anywhere from one third to midway through the lap and in both cases i think the gaps were three or four seconds and so there was there'd be no natural way to let those passes happen it would just be obvious and of course the radio transmissions make it obvious anyway but i mean it just it was almost too comical. It was comical, but and uh, the, the other uh, person you're referring to is Leclerc there. 
McClure. Um, yeah. I mean, it was just, I thought that was actually pathetic. And, and, and his teammate was lined up for a podium, right? His teammate yeah, yeah, there. yeah, yeah. He was a get out of there. But the point is, is like, I thought that was pathetic of him to like several times. He wasn't just once that he asked, you know, he asked several times. It was like, dude, have a little bit of pride, you know? Right. Have, you know, to beg like that, just awful. I, I found that uh, embarrassing for him. Uh, the Verstappen thing is funny because it's it's just like, you know what? I, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> you know, I know I've already won the championship and I know we've already sealed up the constructors, but uh, still not going to do that. Don't ask me again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But Kerb, uh, I'll get to I mean, I'll come back to this. I'll come back to that point. Before I do that, I'll just say a couple of things about the race. I thought it was a pretty good race, actually. You know, there's a lot of passing. There was some hip checking going on that didn't knock cars out for whatever reason. Those cars tend to be pretty fragile, but you saw a few of them kind of make it right through. You yeah. should be thrilled to death that the demise of Danny Ricks just continues at a ever more rapid rate. That was hilarious. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. So that should, that should just please you no end. And um, it was a pretty racy race and there was strategy and there was, you know, intrigue and, I know you're reluctant to say that about an F1 race, but it, it seemed to be a, a lower speed track. Is that fair to say? It's short. So that yeah, negated so, that, that negated the Red Bull advantage. I, guess. I think it negated some of the Red Bulls, and I think the Mercedes has gotten a lot better. Um, but yeah, you're right. I think just uh, it's a shorter track. Um, it's actually on uh, Xbox. It's the one I drive best. But Curb, I have to say. Okay, when we we talk about the race and we talk about the Verstappen thing and the Leclerc thing and and but it as you said it made the the last lap the most interesting lap, right? It added mm-hmm. intrigue to the event. And it added intrigue to the drive to survive crowd. That's going to keep them coming back. I think similar situations happen in IndyCar all the time, but nobody ever hears of it or cares. I know you're a purist and you might not like some of that stuff, but it is what keeps that whole train running. It's hard to deny right now, Curve. I mean, I don't know if you saw that F1 launch party in Las Vegas. Mm-hmm. 40,000 40, people show up for a, a freaking F1 watch launch. There's 40,000 people on vacation in Las Vegas at all times year round, right? So I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if I buy in too much of that, but, but the point I'll, I think, I'll I think, stop for a stop. I, no, if great, IndyCar greatest, does an F1 launch, or if IndyCar does an IndyCar launch in Las Vegas, how many people are going to show up? 20? 100? 20, 20 would be a good crowd. But I mean, um, but I think more to the point is F1 and NASCAR continue to make these investments and take these chances. And, um, and they get, get, they're getting rewarded for it. You know, we, we just knocked NASCAR for being WWE, but... They've set their direction and it's paying off for them too, right? I absolutely agree with that. Like I said, I mean, I don't, I don't, I can't watch it, but right. for, but they, they've picked a direction and they're running with it. Formula One's riding high, and I think we both said, well, you know, sooner or later, Drive Strive is going to get boring to watch, and you know that might taper some of the enthusiasm for that thing. But it's pretty hard to watch the Austin race and see those crowds there, and be an IndyCar fan and not be disheartened i don't know about you you seem to just hate it so much that you can't even be disheartened by it but i am oh it's tremendously disheartening and um 
I can live with the fact that they have bigger crowds. Uh, what I have a hard time with is that IndyCar just seems to give up so easily in, in big markets, right? Or or places where, you know, that circuit of the Americas is a track they ought to race on. There's aren't, it's, as, it's as good a track as there is um, for open-wheel formula cars to race on in the country. And um, they ought to be there. And they just gave up very easily. And, um, and that's frustrating to me. I'll tell you, and you led me onto this curb, and um, normally I don't un- I mention other people's podcasts, but I will in this case. The uh, Hinch and Rossi podcast, what's that called? Off Track? On Track? Off Track, off, yeah. off, off Track with Hinch and Rossi. And it was when Hinch just got back from doing the commentating on F1 TV. I think Rossi was there. I think Rossi kind of, uh, I thought he was pretty eloquent about just, and being, and I think he was just genuinely upset by he's you know and having been in that world previously just to see like just the the crowds and the 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 people that were waiting you know five hours to catch a glimpse of a driver you know because he's like man we're just as good doing the same thing and you know i i gotta sit there and you know sit a a card table and sign autographs for an hour you know i think his head's exploding over it I don't think he minds signing autographs. He just doesn't understand the level of interest in Formula One compared to IndyCar. And, and he's pretty much laying the blame at the feet of IndyCar and whatever they call a marketing department there. I don't want to put words in his mouth. And I, I certainly didn't mean to imply he was bothered by signing autographs, although I'm guessing he probably is. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this is just it's just so hard to watch. People who know nothing about racing, I'm sure you've had these conversations, Curb. I mean, and I'm around these conversations all the time where people are like, yeah, I watched this thing on Netflix. And yeah, then I watched the race. I really want to go to Las Vegas, you know, and I hear it. You know, I'm not even involved in the conversation. I'm hearing it out of my ear and I'm like, oh, God, I don't get the feeling that anybody at IndyCar feels that same way. Uh, You know, at, at least if they do feel that way, they're certainly not going out there and talking about it. You never hear Mark Miles, geez, God, we should be doing better. You never hear, uh, you know, Penske say, well, you know, he's always just like, oh, it's good for them that they're doing so well, you know. And it's just, where's the person at IndyCar going, you know what, we got to do better. But, yeah, it's maddening. And um, and I don't, you know, like I said, I'm not a marketer, but uh, whatever they're doing isn't working. It's, it's terrible. And so can we – just go maybe to a case in point curb. The, just the, late, the latest example of, of just sure. of of where they're falling down. The whole launch of the new IndyCar Indy Lights, which is now Indy Next. Next. It's spelled capital N, capital X, capital T. Indy mm-hmm. Next. Okay. And that's important for some other reasons. When this came out. There was a lot of people going, what the, you know, first of all, why are you calling it Indy Next? What, you know, uh, they already had kind of this boondoggle over the one guy who, you know, Linus Onequist, who, you know, won the IndyCar lights and actually won it, you know, handily and looks like a skilled shoe and everything. And he's probably not even, good. you know, he might get in a couple races this year, but it's that's far from certain at this point because they took away the money. Right. And and, cut it, and so cut they, it they, cut it yeah, they already had that kind of publicity boondoggle there. And then they follow up with this uh, name change of Indie Lights. Normally, I don't read comment sections after articles. 
Right. But every once in a while, it's like a train wreck curb. You got to look. Right. <laughs> right. Um, but there's a guy who who actually had like a really good post. Uh, yeah, I'm not going to read it verbatim here, but um, I'll just give you a few highlights because I thought he, he kind of summed up exactly how I felt. So I thought, why why reinvent the wheel if I don't have to? Mm-hmm. Okay, so he said he starts by saying, if this is what it, Penske Entertainment's considered good marketing, they're doomed. Their continued decision to shrink the IndyCar logo is one of the dumbest marketing decisions ever. It's a wonder how IndyCar can establish any brand recognition when their own logo is obscured and undermined by a title sponsor. None of the other racing series have their brands obscured by title sponsors. He says, the name change from lights to next did absolutely need to be done. The term next, NXT, is an invitation for confusion. A quick Google search brings up a recommended search of IndyXT, which are earbuds by Skull Candy. Okay. Doing a search for NXT exclusively brings up WWE Wrestling, who they appeared to have stolen this from. This change wiped out whatever marketing foothold Indy Lights established in its recent growth. Confusion on top of confusion, I guess. And by the way, right underneath the new logo with Firestone Indy Next Series are three top three drivers in the series wearing their Cooper Tires hats. So, <laughs> there you go. So. End of story. These guys are, are clowns. And I know, Crypt, do you know who the guy is? Person? I have no idea. Well, on the bright side, though, <laughs> their, car, their car counts do continue to go up. I, I just, uh, to me, the whole IndyCar lights uh, rebranding is just, it's a, it's a good case study for, like, what ails uh, IndyCar marketing right now. It's poorly handled. They're bringing the usual suspects around with them to pay the bills, you know, Firestone. And it's amazing to me that, Companies like Honda, Firestone, and uh, Chevy don't insist on better. Well, that's a good question. And, you know, in part, IndyCar kind of relies on them to do a lot of the marketing, right? I think a lot of this leads in the direction of there's starting to be a bit of grumbling about, uh, dare I say it, RP. Lost touch that he's he's kind of too old and set in his ways and he's not kind of grasping on to the new reality out there. And For those that feel that way, probably the best example I can put out there is – this whole thing about the new car, or sorry, about not coming up with the new car. To me, you know, you watch the the F1 race, and the you know it is one of the coolest things about F1. You know, there's not only new cars every year, but there's different teams with different cars, and it, it is undeniably cool. IndyCar, you know, seems like they're going to just continue on with this DW12 forever. And now, Kirby, you sent me a little blurb the other day that we're talking about a retrofit to house the new unit of mm-hmm. 250 to, to a half million dollars a piece. All right. Right. To accommodate the size and the extra girth of 120 pounds or so that this thing's going to add on. Uh, you asked the question and it, it absolutely has to be asked. Why, why not a new car? It's crazy. Well, I agree. I mean, from the outside and it's the way it appears, it's hard to cry poverty now for teams, even though they're going to spend a lot of money in the intervening years, adapting to this, that, and the other thing, uh, whatever, um, you know, if they can afford to spend the money they have to spend to adjust all these things, why not just, let's put a target two or three years out and, and wrap this all into one big expense rather than than just stringing it along and, and still, you know, making the same old car work with all these new new uh, technologies. Well, let's uh, do some, let's just do some soup, simple math, shall we? Okay. 
Um, we got uh, S Smith 250 to 500. Admittedly, it's pretty big range to to accommodate the bigger motor. Let's let's uh, make it 400 for easy math. Okay. All right. All right. We got 400 for easy math to to adjust them for that. We've already spent what 100 plus on the arrow screen. So and, and by the way, they're going to get new arrow screens. They're working on new arrow screens already. In the end, it was going to save a bunch of weight, uh, you know, cut the weight in half. But uh, last article I read, so they're going to shave 10 pounds off. Shave 10 pounds, which for 100 grand. Yeah, which will do nothing for the 120. They're just adding on, putting right. the hybrid system on that nobody's going to care about. So let's just say they're somewhere. We're somewhere between a half million and 600 thousand dollars. Mm-hmm. Last time around, I, and I think I got this right, Curb. The the chassis went for for a, a new chassis went for around six hundred. Yeah, I was gonna say six fifty, something like that. So yeah. Okay. Yeah. So so thereabouts. It's uh we've had inflation, all that. I'm gonna say a new chassis, if they were to do one, is probably gonna end up somewhere in that nine hundred to a million bucks range. Right. But I gotta tell you, that's we're only talking. A matter of a couple few hundred grand. Not only that, but we're talking about something that's not, you know, a Frankenstein car. These cars with all that extra weight, who knows what that's going to do to the racing. It's certainly not going to do anything for the safety. I mean, adding more weight to a car is not going to make that thing any safer when it hits the wall uh, at a oval, right? Right. It just makes the oval racing in particular unnecessarily more dangerous. Mm-hmm. And we all know how IndyCar doesn't have a stomach for bad accidents anymore. It just the whole thing just seems like they just jump from one thing to the next with no clear direction. You know, every time Roger Penske's asked about it, he's like, "Oh, this thing could be around, you know, another ten years. The racing's great." And I, to me, that's the greatest example of if if you're one of these detractors of Roger Penske, that's the greatest example of him where you could say, "Look, he is out of touch." Well, I never want to be so bold as to say Roger Penske's out of touch, but you know, for all of his uh, success in business, to my knowledge, none of that was involved in the so-called entertainment business, right? So, I mean, Penske Entertainment owns and operates IndyCar now and a uh, different game than the automobile business, right? I respect his, I don't want to say slow and steady, but I mean, he's he keeps his uh, business plans probably close to the best and, and um, you know, has a history of under-promising and over-delivering and probably feels like that's still the way to go, but it does seem at the moment that they're more than a step behind the competition and, and not gaining any ground. I think that's an excellent point you just made about under-promising and over-delivering, which is an excellent technique if you're the chairman of board of a company, right? Public company. Right. right. That's, a, that's, a, that's an excellent way to go. I think in the world of marketing, however, it doesn't quite work that way. You know, marketing by definition is hype. I think taking that super conservative approach to marketing I think what it does is you lose people, right? Because they're like, ah, they're just going to be racing the next the car, the same cars for the next five years. You gotta, you gotta kind of be a little full of it sometimes, and you gotta sometimes overpromise and underdeliver a little bit. At the at the very worst, you know, you you hype it and you live up to the promise, okay? But to just sit there and 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 underpromise and and leave people with no hope of, you know, things improving which is kind of the net result of that, it, I don't think it's it works. Like I said, it works in other aspects of business, but I don't think in the world of marketing it does. It seems to me that um, there's a lot of inexpensive ways to, to market these days. And just from top to bottom, I don't see it happen anywhere, right? I mean, whether it's IndyCar marketing, whether it's social media for teams and drivers or the series, 
you know, I, I've said it before. Jimmy Johnson comes and goes and blew all the rest of them away, it seemed like to me. So uh, last I'll say about it regarding the Roger Penske thing and nothing but respect for the for the gentleman from me. And, and I know from you and I think he may have saved IndyCar. We just don't even realize it. So it's with the greatest of respect that I just say, I don't think it's going to work to take kind of a almost dirt track approach to IndyCar where you, you stay in your comfort zone of the Midwest primarily and you ride, you know, you do cars that have been the same for, for the last 20 years and try to make a go of it that I just, it shouldn't work because IndyCar is cooler than that. You know, kind of double back on some of our previous conversations about events if nothing else they ought to be figuring what they can do to have the best events possible with with good crowds that show well on television if you're going to continue with these old cars and without really anything exciting technology wise or or at least in a visual for the cars right you're relying on personalities to drive the interest and you got a long way to go with indie car drivers if you're if you're relying on their personalities to drive the interest yeah 100 percent that NBC is going to somehow hype away the fact that there's 5,000 people in the stands. We had two great examples that have occurred in the last few weeks, Curb, of like what IndyCar could be if they were just a little bit more open-minded. One was, uh, I don't know if you saw any of the, the stuff from like when Ericsson went back to Sweden with the trophy. No, I didn't. Uh, huge crowds there to see him and the trophy. Like he's up on a stage. He's like a rock star. A week or so later, uh, Juncos goes down to Argentina, driver down there, takes an Indy car down there, and they run a track down there. Again, just a demonstration of an Indy car on the track, huge crowd. Right. right? And, and, and like, I think it'll take dynamite before Roger Kopensky moves out, uh, you know, outside of this country, right? Zero yeah. interest. How many people are you, you know, I'm not saying we got to go to Sweden or Argentina. I mean, I'm not, uh, I'm not that kind of unrealistic but i i think there are large fan bases and there's got to be a large fan base in at least one or two of these countries outside of our border not to mention the one just north of us uh which probably should be having two or three races every year uh add to that those two examples i think um i, I read or heard about uh Pato award having huge crowds following him at the mexican grand prix the formula one you ought to be open anyway to looking to uh, Mexico, Central America, South America for some early season racing opportunities that help fill your schedule. Maybe they start growing your international TV audience to where you actually make a little bit of money off of that. IndyCar, IRL in particular, but IndyCar used to have lots of Brazilian sponsors, lots of South American sponsors. And I know some of that was tobacco and such, but you know, I think it's a natural way to look to help kind of fill out your schedule in the early parts of the year. Yeah, I just had that thought when you were talking about the tobacco sponsorship. Mm-hmm. Could a could a weed company legally sponsor a car now? <laughs> I don't know. I bet I bet you I can almost bet you they can, and that would be the greatest of all ironies. It'd be something. I don't know what I would call it, but it'd be something. I knew this was going to be a rough one, Curb, but uh, we had to do it. It has to be said. The the spleen had to be vented. Yeah, I apologize for bitching and moaning and not really offering much <laughs> in the way of solutions, I guess. But um, Curb, can I add a, uh, a, a can I end on a positive note? Please, please do. Alec Palau at, uh, in Austin at, in the first practice one. Free practice one, Justin. Sorry. <laughs> you got me, Curb. You got me. In free practice one. I think I might have cut out your whole FP1 rant. Uh, 
Probably goes after. So nobody knows what we're talking about because I cut it out because I was like I was bored by it the first time, much less the second time. Mm-hmm. Anyways, uh, to to end on a positive note, Alex Palau in uh, FP1 practice absolutely murdered it. Okay, he was yeah. within three tenths of Norris on older tires, and uh, you know he he definitely had very strict instructions not to push things too much, right? And I think a lot of eyebrows were raised by his performance there, not only for him, but for IndyCar in general, IndyCar drivers in general. Even Norris probably had to sit there and go, ooh, that's, that's pretty spicy meatball. Yeah, I don't know what good it's going to do him, but it certainly uh, reflected well on IndyCar. I don't know where there's room at the end in Formula 1 for him in McLaren, at the McLaren stable. Don't know whether they would let him go to any other teams or not. He showed well. I wasn't surprised he showed well. I think he's suited well to that uh, to that series. He's got Norris and Piastri in there. I mean, there's no room at the end there um, for the foreseeable future. So, I agree. It can't be at McLaren. But it did raise eyes, and it probably did help his career a lot. If he hasn't been smart about it uh, the first time around, uh, I think if Formula, there's got to be a clause in his contract now that if Formula 1 comes knocking, he can go. Yeah, I hope so for him. All right, Kerb. Let's, uh, let's end it there. That was... Way more than enough. <laughs> All right. Uh, Twitter. At Hero, H-I-R-O, IndyCar. At Hero, IndyCar. And uh, do you have any sponsors these days? Sure. I'll chuck him one. Uh, he's been through a lot in the last week or so. South Street Diner, Boston, Massachusetts. Mention this podcast to Saul, the owner, and he will give you a generous discount. There you go. Thanks, Saul. Thank you, Saul. Hey, everybody. Good night. Take care, everybody. Thanks for listening.